Again, this joy has to be by faith, and hope comes by faith, and not by any emotion that we might have at any given moment. So joyful hope, those must always go together. This is a super abundant provision of God, and we delight in the person of Christ, which causes us to expect his sure return and the work that he's accomplished. Welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, a ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. In Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 3, Paul says, And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. If you joined us last week, you know Pastor Chris covered the topic of perseverance in this series of messages that we're calling Topics for Tough Times. Today, Pastor Chris will begin a message covering the topic of hope. Pastor Chris will biblically define hope as the Holy Spirit-empowered attitude of joyful, peaceful, and confident expectation of the enjoyment of Christ and the eternal inheritance he provides upon his return. If you would, please grab your Bible as Pastor Chris begins this message on hope. If you would, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1. I'm going to read the first five verses, and then we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about what it means to have a true biblical hope. And certainly in a time such as this, there is great need for us to understand what we are truly hoping in. There's too many things that we tend to put our hope in that are not worthy of it, and they disappoint us, and they let us down, and we should have known that that was coming because there's only one thing that is worthy of our hope. So 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, when Elise and I went to seminary, we'd been in seminary for about a year. We went in uh, in the year 2000. And we got the delightful news about a year into seminary that Elisa was pregnant with our second child. Now, this was made even more delightful by the fact that we had been desiring to have another child ever since our firstborn son, and that had been a span of about eight years. So you can imagine how delighted we were. 
to have this little one be on the way. And so we made the preparations and made the plans and began to look ahead to having uh, another child. And about four months, four and a half months into that pregnancy, I remember as clearly as, as though it were yesterday, and at least it came, I'd come home from work, or actually I'd come home from school, come home from seminary, and she had been in pain all day long, and she came to me and she said, this is, this is unusual, this is, not, this is not normal, there's something wrong. So we went to the emergency room, uh, it would have been about 6 o'clock at night, we drove over to the emergency room there in Valencia, California, and we were admitted into the, into the, into the room there, and uh, we spent really all night with Elisa in great pain, and uh, ultimately, we, as, as she went through that evening, uh, there was you know, massive amounts of bleeding and other things that were that were going on. And when we finished out that morning, when we finished out, it was early in the morning, maybe two or three in the morning. Uh, some of the pain had subsided and the blood loss was had, had slowed down. And so we went to get an ultrasound. And when we got that ultrasound, there was no sign of a baby at all. Whereas before, just a couple of weeks before, we'd been able to see on the ultrasound that little one in Elisa's womb. It was the baby was gone. The baby was no more. She at least had miscarried at about four and a half months, and that. So we, we exhausted. We came home and and just cried and and talked to the Lord and cried out to Him and talked to each other and uh, made it. I, I had to go to school for one class that day, and then I had to go right to work after that. And the, my work involved. I was at ten. I went in at ten o'clock at night, and I was walking around on the campus of Masters College. There, I was a security guard and. And a couple, I, I worked with two other guys that night, but a lot of the night was spent, you would go out and just walk around by yourself for an hour. And I remember just crying out to the Lord. We'd, we'd been hoping for eight years to have a child. Then when that baby had been conceived, our hopes had seemed to come to fruition. A little one had been conceived in the womb and the Lord had, had as it were, stoked the flame of our hope by, by allowing Elisa to conceive. And then all that hope had been, had been ripped away. Uh, the things that we had hoped for, had prayed for at that time were gone. And I, I remember crying out to the Lord. I, it wasn't as though I had stopped trusting him or, or didn't believe that he was good. The pain of that moment was gripping because something that I had hoped for, a good thing that I had hoped for, and something that I had hoped for that really we had hoped for for many years was at that time gone. And the pain of that was intense. But as I went through the night, I had... I had some good friends there at the seminary. I would come into the guard shack and we would pass as they would go out and they'd talk a little bit and then I could talk on the radio with them as I was going around, as I was out. They just, they quoted scripture to me. They encouraged me. Sometimes they were just quiet as I cried out to the Lord and really in, in, in all, all that I could think through to cry out, to question, to say, Lord, why did you do this? And yet, Lord, I trust you. Through that night, the Lord just worked in my heart that I would I would look to Him and that I would remember that my hope, that my trust was in Him. Now, I make the pain go away. It's intensely painful. I went back home and Elisa and I spent weeks just working our way through it. It was certainly much harder on her than it was on me, having that little one literally taken out of her body. It's just, it's, it's an experience. If you haven't gone through it, I don't think anyone would ever, could ever really understand what was happening, particularly a little one that you had well, every other one would be longed for and hoped for. So just working our way through that, helping her work through that, and coming to the realization yet again, many times in our life this had been true, that the only thing, the only sure hope was in our Lord Jesus. And that even, even his, his, his work in our lives, in when he does things that sometimes like I think, I, you know, I can hope and that it looks like something's going to happen, even if he takes that away, that he has other plans, that his 
plans for us and his work in our lives is still good and that that's what we hope in. We're not hoping in the individual work. We're not hoping in the specific thing that he does. Although it's fine to have hopes about those things, we are putting our hope in him, in his character, in his nature. And certainly as we worked our way through that, it it drew us close together and caused us to really have to cling tightly to the Lord and to recognize again that our hope was to be found in him and in him alone. And certainly this is true at all times, whether it is something traumatic like that, something that had been hoped for for many years and something that's based even around in the, in the life of a child and then in, in the kind of the framework of our family or whether it's whether something not, not as, as dramatic, the hope of a graduation or the hope of a wedding or the hope of, of some event that we would wish would happen, the hope of a relationship that, that we would want to have, any of those things. When we begin to work our way through life, we find that those hopes quickly fail us. And in nearly every sense, those sub-hopes, even if, we, even if we do achieve them, cannot provide for us what we were hoping for. And so as believers, we certainly are in need of hope. And certainly as, as the world full of unbelievers tries to cling to every other kind of hope, they are in desperate need of knowing the one true hope that we have. We are strangers and aliens in a dark, dangerous, and difficult world. It's full of sin. It's full of difficulty. It, it's, 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 it's broken in every way. And so we are in need of a, a true hope, not wishful thinking, not foolish self-talk, not hope in things that are temporary, but a true hope which cannot and does not disappoint. And there's only one such hope in this world, and that's found in our Lord Jesus. Now, see, the world would tell you, even as they hope for other things, that, that if someone is relatively wise in the way of the world, they'll say, well, there's no such thing as a hope that's certain. Right? They promote having hope. They promote following your dreams, following the thing that you hope for. But even the world knows or, or believes that there isn't anything that's truly certain. But they're wrong. There is something, someone who is certain, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is worthy of our placing all of our hope in him. So what we'll see this evening is that God has caused us to be born again that we might know and experience all the splendorous riches of Christ and live in joyful, confident hope of receiving their full benefit upon his promised and sure return. God has caused us to be born again so that we might know and experience all the splendorous riches of Christ and to live in joyful, confident hope of receiving their full benefit upon his promised and sure return. New birth provides joyful hope in our glorious Christ. New birth provides joyful hope in our glorious Christ. As we begin to move into our discussion tonight, let's first look at a definition. Again, as in each of these topics for tough times, I've been taking really the topic from all of the Bible, Old and New Testament, working through the word and the concept of hope in this case, and trying to compile the verses and the thoughts and the concepts into one definition. So that's what I've done here. Again, all of these definitions you know, they, they could know of greater expansion or they could maybe be a little bit more simple, but trying to bring in all of the important elements of this particular word. So we have hope essentially being the Holy Spirit-empowered attitude of joyful, peaceful, and confident expectation of the enjoyment of Christ and the eternal inheritance that he provides upon his return. Again, the, the Holy Spirit-empowered attitude of joyful, peaceful and confident expectation of the enjoyment of Christ and of the eternal inheritance that he provides upon his return. This is an eternal hope. This is, as we learned in our passage or see in our passage, it's a living hope because it's a hope in a person. 
It's a hope in a relationship. It's a hope in the inheritance that the Lord Jesus provides for us, which is not only the blessings and benefits of the new heavens and new earth, but all of that experienced in intimate, personal, eternal relationship with Christ himself. Our hope, every part of it is bound up in the Lord Jesus. Essentially, our hope is all the benefits of Christ, of being in union with Christ and the relationship that we share, and then the great blessings that flow out of it. So let's first just work our way briefly through the definition, and then look at the pieces of the definition which will help us understand how we pursue hope. Because all that I've said up to now, most of you probably already know. You realize we are to put our hope in Christ. In fact, you've done that, most of you. You've put your faith and trust in Christ. You put your hope in him. And yet living this out in the difficulties of of this world is always difficult and grows increasingly difficult, certainly in times like this, where many of the things that we were looking towards, even as our sub-hopes, are being pulled away, or certainly are not the same as they were before. So first, the idea that this is a Holy Spirit-empowered attitude. Ephesians 1.18, I think, really grounds the idea of what it means that it's the Spirit of God that does this. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. What the Spirit of God does is as he regenerates our heart, and really our hope is is built or based in regeneration. This text says that as well. We've been born again to a living hope. So the Spirit regenerates our heart. That's his work. He comes to live inside of us, and he shines the light in our mind and will and affections and even our conscience to the greatness of Christ, which enables us to put our hope in him, to recognize that he is worthy, to recognize the blessings and benefits that he provides, and then to live our life in light of who he is and what he's done, rather than in light of who we are. And only the Spirit of God can do that. Only a regenerate heart can have this kind of hope. Every other person in the world, all unbelievers, have only sub-hopes, things that will not last, things that cannot truly satisfy, things that will fail them. Only believers can have this kind of true, solid, enduring, and eternal hope because the Spirit of God produces it. And only the Spirit of God is a Holy Spirit-empowered attitude of the heart, essentially. And this attitude consists of a joyful expectancy. That is, it is full of delight at who Jesus is and what he's done. This isn't a passive attitude. You see, hope is not something that we just kind of sit back and it, it will grow in us without, a, without cultivation. And part of that cultivation is to rejoice. It is to take joy in the goodness and greatness of Christ. Romans 15, 13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are to abound, overflow in this hope, and we are to rejoice. We're to be full of an understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done so that we rejoice in the great blessings that he has provided us. This hope or or this joy comes by faith. It's not a joy, as we discussed several weeks ago, it's not a joy of an emotional jolt. It's not a joy of, of emotional feelings. It's a joy that comes by faith. We believe who Jesus is, we trust in what he's done, and as a result, we direct our delight to him. 1 Peter 1a, and though you have not seen him, You love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. This joy that is part of your hope is generated by faith, knowing and trusting in the principles of the word of God. And by the way, it's only the spirit of God that allows that as well. Unbelievers don't have biblical faith. They can't. 
power of God is what provides faith and holds faith and keeps us exercising faith. So this joyful expectancy is a delight in the person and work of Christ that causes us to look ahead to the time when we will be with him and to rejoice in that, to put all of our hope there. Romans 12, 12 says we are to rejoice in hope, persevere in tribulation, and be devoted to prayer. So the first key attitude of hope is joy. And if we don't have joy, then whatever we are experiencing isn't hope. You see, they go together. There's really no such thing as depressed hope or ungrateful hope or sad hope. Again, I'm not talking simply emotional feelings. You can be sad and be hopeful with emotion. I'm talking about an inner hard attitude that is is grieving inappropriately, a, a wrong kind of sadness. You can't have those go together, which is why, again, this joy has to be by faith and hope comes by faith and not by any emotion that we might have at any given moment. So joyful hope, those must always go together. This is a super abundant provision of God and we delight in the person of Christ, which causes us to expect his sure return and the work that he's accomplished. Next, this is a peaceful expectancy. So it's joyful and it's peaceful. We are expecting what God will bring not anxiously. See, some people in their hope, they're anxious for it. They're not sure it's going to happen. They want it desperately to happen, but they don't know for sure. And so they're anxious as they await the fulfillment of their hope. This has probably happened to you multiple times. You're going to go on a trip. And so you're anxious getting ready for the trip, hoping that it will happen, hoping you can get prepared, and then awaiting that day. But they're not peaceful. In fact, this often happens to families as they go on vacation. They're going to have this great thing that they've been looking forward to, this great hope of this fun time. And they're so anxious about it, that they sin against each other. And most of the time spent in preparation is not a peaceful hope of what they're looking forward to, but it is full of bickering, full of really sinful attitudes, maybe even anger. Well, our hope in the Lord Jesus is to be peaceful. That is, it is to be calm without turmoil or anxiety. It is a gracious confidence in God's person and having a right relationship with him. It is a loving work of God in our hearts to cause us to trust him. And as we trust, we are peaceful. Again, it doesn't mean that there might not be very difficult situations going on. It doesn't mean that there might not be inner turmoil in the sense of really hard things that you're trying to decide and difficult things that have have happened. I would say, during the time of our, our miscarriage, there was never a time when there wasn't a, a grief and, and a pain that I was working through. But in the midst of that, the Lord began to work his peace. But there was a trust in him and a rest in him based in faith and really truly a joy to know that the Lord was working out his purposes, was accomplishing what he desired to do. John 14, 1, Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Hope in me. Trust in me. And don't be troubled. Again, it doesn't mean that we don't feel troubled at times or there is an inner turmoil, but we don't allow that to, to dictate to us how we will act or how we will think. John 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. See, the world gives a fake peace. We just kind of forget that it's there. Or you go to your happy place or you, you do some false thing that will make you feel good about yourself or the situation. No, Jesus gives a real peace. So we can properly assess the situation. This is really bad. This is really hard. We can think carefully about what we need to do, and it can be, this is going, these are going to be difficult days ahead. But in the midst of that, there is a peace to know, a rest in God to know that he will step us through those things. So this is a joyful and peaceful expectancy, trusting the Lord and having an inner calm 
that keeps us from being driven by anxiety. Absolute confidence in the character and nature of God. Paul expresses this kind of confidence in the midst of being in prison and about to go to his own death in 2 Timothy 1.12. It says, for this reason I suffer these things, that is to be in prison, to suffer all the things that he did as, as an apostle. I suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. His hope was in the day to come. He'd entrusted his life to the Lord Jesus, and he was at rest knowing that God would be faithful with what Paul had entrusted him with. So it's a joyful expectancy, a peaceful expectancy, and it's a confident expectancy. What I mean by that is this. It isn't a hope that's like, well, I I hope that'll happen, but I'm not sure. Well, I I really want that to happen, but I really don't know if it will. This kind of hope is absolutely confident. By faith, we take hold of the fact that these things will happen, and there is no doubt. Now, We wrestle with doubts. We'll struggle with that because we're sinful. But ever increasingly, our hope is to be confident because these things are sure. Nothing else is sure. No other hope, but this one is. And so we can have absolute confidence. And in fact, that's what happens when we grow in our faith, to believe what God has done, to trust in the principles of the word of God. We grow in this true confidence. This isn't confidence in ourselves. This is not some kind of foolish confidence in that I can do this and I know this will happen and you know, I'll make these things. It's not that kind of confidence. It's a confidence which says, I know God will do what he has said. I know that the Lord Jesus will provide the things that he has promised and that he will come again for me and bring me to be with himself for all of eternity. Hebrews 6.18 speaks of this kind of absolute confidence. The writer says this, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one that enters within the veil. He's speaking of the hope of Christ and the work of Christ. And that is a sure hope. It's, a, it's an anchor for the soul. And when the wind is blowing and when the storms are raging, this anchor keeps us firm. And it's the only one. He's the only one in whom we can have this absolute confidence. People will not do this for you. you. Try to put your confidence in people and they will fail you because they're not the Lord Jesus. Circumstances certainly can't live up to your expectations. The events of your life, the things that you thought would be so great, none of those is an anchor for the soul. Only the Lord Jesus. And so this hope that we have is an absolute confidence. 1 Peter 5.8, Paul says, But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. That is an absolute confidence that God has saved us and that he will save us to the fullest. We understand that he's saved us in the past as we repented and believed. He's saving us now as he sanctifies us and preserves us. He will save us to the utmost in the future when he glorifies us and when we go to be with him. He will save us. And that hope of salvation is an absolute confidence. No one can snatch us from his hand. The verse in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, it said, we are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He himself protects us. And so there can be absolute confidence because we might think, well, all right, I have full confidence in Christ. I I get that. If I don't have any confidence in myself, I don't think that I can hold on. I don't think that I can hope in this way. That's the beauty of this. It's not about your ability. It's not about you being able to keep, you know, you have to keep 
fanning the flames of your own hope and, and hoping that maybe you'll be able to put confidence in the Lord. No, He will do that. He will strengthen you as you pursue Him through His Word, as you seek Him out. It is His power that enables you to keep hoping. And that's why every believer has this hope and firm and confident assurance of it. It's not just like there are certain hopeful people. You might know those kind of people. They always seem to be happy about something, hoping for something with kind of this positive, optimistic outlook. That's not a true hope. We're not talking about happy people that just see the glass as half full. We're talking about those who by the power of God are enabled to place their full confidence in him, trusting that he will do and will be all that he has said. This is a confident expectancy. And then it's an expectancy, this joyful, peaceful, confident expectancy of the enjoyment of Christ. That is of having the precious privilege of enjoying Christ for all of eternity. He, as we have been saying, is the object of our hope. All that we desire is found in him and brought to completion through his person and work. There's no hope outside of him. No other person or object can live up to or provide us a true hope. And it's the, the hope of delighting in him. It's not, it's not just the, the bare hope of being with him, as though, you know, you might, it might not be somebody, you, it might be somebody you don't like very much, and, you know, inevitably you're going to have to go be with them or live with them. Well, I mean, that wouldn't be very great hope. No, this is the delightful hope of experiencing all the richness of a relationship with the God of the universe, with the Christ who died for us and lives for us. This is the enjoyment of Christ that we're looking forward to. It begins now. There's certain pieces of it that we experience now, but that's for all of eternity. We look forward to being drowned, as it were, in the blessings and delights of Christ himself. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope? Ephesians 1.12 to the end that we who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. 2 Corinthians 1.9, as Paul speaks of the intense difficulties of being an apostle, all the things that he went through to try to bring the gospel really around the known world at that time. He says, indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. In the greatest of difficulties and the deepest of trials, the Apostle Paul looked to the hope that is Christ, the hope of the enjoyment of the person and work of Christ, the delights of Christ. This is the kind of hope that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego spoke to King Nebuchadnezzar about as they were about to be cast into the fiery furnace. So they're standing there, having refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar and to his idol. They've been called out then by the other rulers uh, who were looking for them and pointing them out that they did not bow. So they call, essentially calls them up on the, on the great dais that was up in front uh, of the statue in front of all the people. Nebuchadnezzar uh, confronts Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with, I'll give you one more chance to bow down. Like he was incredulous that they would choose not to do this. And this is how they responded. With absolute confidence with hope in the work and in the salvation that God provides. Daniel 3.16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand. That was their hope. The hope was in God in what he could provide. But then they say this, but even if he does not, 
Let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They had an even greater hope. Yes, they hoped that he would deliver them, and they knew that God could deliver them, but their greater hope was that they would experience the blessings and benefits of being with their God, even if he took them unto death through this fiery furnace. And that's why they could say, but even if he doesn't deliver us, it doesn't matter at all. We will not bow down because he is our God. We will be with him. We trust him. And it is fascinating that when they were thrown into the fiery furnace, what happened? God was there. Our best understanding is that it was the Lord Jesus Christ, a theophany of Christ appearing in the Old Testament as he walks with them in the fiery furnace, bringing to him the pleasure and benefit, to them, the pleasure and benefit of his presence, as he will one day do for us fully when we are with him in heaven. So this is the confidence of the enjoyment of Christ, of the protection he provides, of the, of the wisdom he provides, of the blessings and benefits that he provides, of the relationship that he provides. All of these things, we look forward to this. And then, so it is the, both the enjoyment of the riches of Christ and of his great inheritance. Colossians 1.5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. That is, that we get to participate in honoring and pleasing Christ as his heirs, as his children. And all of the blessings and benefits of the new heavens and new earth, of, of honoring the Lord, of worshiping with the saints, of accomplishing his work, that inheritance will be ours forever. So the delights of Christ personally and individually, and then the delights of serving and honoring him, of taking part of the inheritance that he will give to us as his children. And all of this, to finish out our definition, is upon his return. You see, hope is based in things that haven't happened yet. Yes, there are certain parts of that hope that we bring to today. It Benefits us today as we look ahead to what God will do. But all of this hope, the the fundamental nature of our hope is is bound up in something that is yet to come. That's what hope is. It's hoping for something that hasn't happened yet. If it's already happened, it isn't hope, it's reality. And so this hope will be realized when Christ returns. That's what Peter says a little further down in our passage in verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Although we look and expect and take joy in what he provides for us now, our primary hope is fixed upon his return. When all of the uncertainties, the sin, the difficulties of the world will be taken away and we will exalt and revel in the fullness of the expression of those things that we hoped for. This hope is fixed completely on him and it is fully realized when Christ returns. Again, we benefit from hope now. We delight and rejoice in what hope provides for us as we look ahead, but it will not be fully realized until it comes again. So that's the definition of hope. Let's look now at the characteristics of hope. What is this hope like? First, and I think it's important that we understand this, this hope is undeserved. See, it's not like we hope for something because we deserve to have it. We've reached or attained a certain status. We have, you know, there's certain things about us that cause us to deserve this blessing and benefit. No, this hope is entirely undeserved. It is a hope that we are given by grace. 2 Thessalonians 2.16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. See, the goodness of the things that we receive, we don't deserve. Sometimes we can look ahead to certain things and maybe we hope to be the valedictorian of our class because we've worked so hard. We hope to be able to go on a trip because we earned the money. 
And so there's a sense in which our hope, we feel like it's deserved. I did this, and so the hope that I look forward to is something that I've earned, and that makes it sometimes even harder when we don't get it. But imagine a hope that you didn't deserve at all. You're given all of these blessings, all of these benefits, when you had nothing really to do with it at all. You didn't deserve it. There was nothing you did that could earn it. You can't look ahead to it because of your own goodness or the things that you will do. It is entirely by grace. Unbelievers have none of this hope because they haven't been given grace. They haven't received the grace of God. Ephesians 2.12 speaks of what it was like. And, and maybe this is hard for you, and I want to focus on this just for a moment. See, if you've been a believer for a while, you, you know hope. You, believers know this kind of hope, at least in some measure, because the Spirit of God works it in their hearts. Maybe you've forgotten what it's like to be hopeless. Now, it may be that right now you are feeling hopeless. That you are in a difficult time, maybe a time of despair or darkness, maybe brought on by this crisis, maybe long before this. And so you know well what it is to be hopeless. But I think many of us, we, we came to Christ early perhaps, and we never experienced the hopelessness of not knowing Christ, of not having anything that we could look to that would truly be solid or secure. Well, for all unbelievers, that is their state, Ephesians 2.12. Paul says, remember that at that time when they didn't know Christ. You were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, and having no hope and without God in the world. It is a travesty when believers offer to unbelievers sub-hopes. Hey, I'll come and I'll fix this for you, or we'll, we'll take care of your earthly situation and make that better, and so you'll have hope. That isn't going to provide them. It's not that we can't provide those things and help people in, in a more temporal way, Give them hope. But if that's all believers offer to unbelievers, they are still truly without any real hope. And it would be of great harm for us to offer to help them and give them these other kinds of hopes, these temporal worldly hopes, and leave them without the true hope of knowing Christ. Because apart from him, there is no hope. So not some not maybe they'll get, you know, get to heaven. Not maybe they'll be able to experience the blessings of God for eternity. They will never be able to have that. They are without hope. They will have no hope and without God in the world. Even though they don't recognize it, that is their state. We need to remember that. We need to remember that that is what we were like. We had no hope. We were without God. Unbelievers have no hope. So we have the one thing to offer to them, this good hope by grace. And so our hope is entirely undeserved. It comes to us because of the person and work of Christ and is given to us apart from anything we could earn or deserve. And we are granted this precious blessing of hope. And if you've ever wrestled with depression or wrestled with hopelessness, you know what a great blessing. When you once again fix your minds on the Lord Jesus, when you once again, the clouds shift and move and you're able to see him for who he truly is, you know what that hope is like. I mean, it's like clinging to a lifeline in, in, the, in the midst of the darkest of storms. Well, that's what Jesus is for us. And that's what he is for his people at all times of life. It is undeserved and yet it is full and complete. So it's an undeserved hope. It's the hope of eternal life. What an amazing thing. We're not just looking ahead to, you know, uh, going to the beach or having a nice vacation or getting some new stuff or getting a new job. We're looking forward to a life of abundance forever. Titus 1-2. In the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. He promised it to us. He offers us this eternal abundant life and we will receive it. That's our hope. 
Titus 3.7, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We must not trust in this life. This finite life that ends after 60, 70, 80 years, maybe a little bit longer. No, our hope is in a life that lasts forever. Not just, not just an, an eternal extension of life, but an eternal abundance of life. Because that's what you're hoping in. That's what you need to offer people. Do not offer them the hope of the things that end after 80, 80 years. We're offering them the hope of a life that goes on forever in eternal and abundant joy, the hope of eternal life. Also, we have the hope of our fellow saints. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, for who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? We have the realization that we will see the believers that we have loved and worked with And that even if they're taken from our lives now, either by death or they move away or or we go somewhere else, that one day we will see them again. This hope of an ongoing relationship with fellow believers, those whom we have poured our lives into, perhaps those who were unbelievers and we shared with them and lived with them and they came to know Christ. This is an incredible hope that we will not be separated relationally from those we love. So the joy of having a relationship with Christ is really bound up in also sharing that relationship with others, other human beings that we know and love and that we will not be eternally separated from them. I mean, perhaps a time like this should cause us to realize that even more as we have been separated from one another, as we will remain separated at some levels and who knows for how long that we would recognize that one of the great joys of heaven is that there will be no separation. We will see one another again, and we will rejoice in that. That's a great hope. Imagine if you sat here tonight, you sat in your room tonight or in your house tonight all alone, and you had no hope of ever seeing another person again. What would your life be like? That's hell. That is not only never seeing in any relational way, no no interpersonal relationship, no joy, no fellowship, but also then suffering underneath the direct punishment of a holy God. That's eternal hell. No relationship ever again. You know, people say, well, I'm going to party in hell. I got this hope of the afterlife because they'll get to do these. No, there will be no partying. There will be no relationship. Can you imagine a greater hell than that? Never another person, never another discussion, never another time to delight and rejoice in one another. Well, that's the hope that we have as Christians, hope in our fellow saints. And by the way, that's a hope that goes beyond our family. Our biological family may or may not be in heaven forever. It is a great thing to, you know, have hopeful times with them and enjoy being with them. And that's right and good. The bottom line is that your biological family, there is not a hope that you will see them in heaven unless they become part of your spiritual family. You will be separated from them forever if they don't come to know Christ. joining us today on Grace Maryville Weekly. We pray that your heart has been encouraged and your faith has been strengthened by the teaching of God's Word. If you would like to find out more about the ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. Online, you will be able to find out more about the many ministries that we offer including our youth ministry, our women's and men's ministry, as well as our college-aged ministry. Not only will you be able to find out more about the many 
ministries that we do offer, you'll be able to access a full audio archive of messages presented from the pulpit at Grace Community Church. Again, please join us on Friday where Pastor Chris will conclude this two-part message.